0: Hello and welcome to the Exeter Law Review podcast. Today you're joined with me, Olivia Turley, the Editor-in-Chief. I also have with me Frances Hand, who's an Associate Editor on the Exeter Law Review. Today we are very fortunate to be joined by Dr David Barrett. Dr David Barrett has an LLB from the University of Leicester, an LLM in Legal Research from the University of Edinburgh, and a PhD from the University of Bristol. His PhD was entitled Regulating Socioeconomic Inequality, Utilising Equality in Human Rights Law, an exploration in the context of English primary education. Prior to joining Exeter Law School, he was a lecturer at Nottingham Trent University. David has two primary research interests. Today we are going to focus on the latter of those interests, that being the mechanisms of equality and human rights enforcement beyond courts. So David, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. And as we have just said, your research is focused on the role of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. Can you explain to us who they are and what p- function they perform?
1: Yep, yeah, sure. Um, So historically, equality law was developed quite um, haphazardly over time, and there was different commissions established at different points. So there originally was the Commission for Racial Equality, the Equal Opportunities Commission, and the Disability Rights Commission. But then equality law expanded rapidly, so now includes things like sexual orientation, religion and belief, age, and these weren't really represented in the previous bodies. Uh, As well, there was an increase on human rights. So a new body was established, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, which was responsible for kind of addressing equality and human rights across all the uh, law. Mm -hmm. So under the Equality Act and under um, the Human Rights Act, they were um, created by the Equality Act 2006 and came into being in 2010. And they have a really wide range of powers. So there's lots of different things they can do. Um, from bringing legal proceedings against people, from helping support legal action, um, they can also undertake inquiries, they are responsible for monitoring equality and human rights across this, across society in terms of research, reports, um, they can undertake investigations if they suspect someone's not complying with the law, mm-hmm. um, so they have a, a wide range of powers at their disposal.
2: So then do Ofsted work with the Commission or are they more of an outside?
1: um so that that is a very yeah, interesting question so um alongside the commission there are a range of other bodies uh, regulators inspectors and ombudsmen, who also under equality law and human rights law have responsibilities for taking into account equality and human rights concerns when they're inspecting services so ofsted in relation to education uh, the care quality commission in relation to health and social care um, Her Majesty's inspectors of prisons in relation to prisons, so there's, there's a wide range of bodies that have this responsibility. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Historically um, the Equality and Human Rights Commission have tried to work with some of these bodies, but that relationship hasn't always been as close as it, as it could be, and it's been closer with some than others. So for example it has had quite a good relationship with the Care Quality Commission. They've um, they signed a memorandum of understanding, which outlined what each of them would do and how they would work together. The Equality and Human Rights Commission organized some training for Care Quality Commission inspectors. But that just hasn't been the case with the other bodies. So in terms of Ofsted, they did a, try and attempt to be more involved in Ofsted and kind of help them with this equality and human rights work when they're inspecting schools, etc. But Ofsted have, have, don't have as close a relationship with the EHRC. So they kind of they all operate independently. But obviously it would work better if they work more closely with the EHRC, because the EHRC is the one that's got the knowledge and skills, and it's about using that to support the different bodies that might not have the knowledge or skills needed.
0: Um, So how effective do you think um, the Commission are in in tackling um, human rights issues, particularly given the fact that they are essentially a government body who are funded by the government? Do you think that inhibits their ability to be independent?
1: so in terms of the effectiveness of the EHRC, it kind of varies. So there's been kind of three different chairs. So there's been kind of three different eras mm-hmm. of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. And in the first area, it was heavily criticised. So there was, I think they found it very difficult bringing staff from three different organisations who specialised in disability, um, race and uh, sex equality. And bring that all together and 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 that was difficult I think there was clashes of personalities in terms of the different people and that kind of affected what they could do they had problems with their accounts at first they were qualified Um, so I think historically they they weren't as strong as they could be
3: Um,
1: and then because of that and uh, joining in kind of the recession their budget was cut drastically So um, it it lost a lot of its resources and had to get rid of a lot of people and that really restricted what it could do. So it kind of focused more on um, general policy things rather than kind of legal intervention. Under the current chair, who's a lawyer, he's focused very much on more legal interventions. Whether this is the best or not, it depends on your view, really. I I think in in the second and third iterations of the HRC, it has been... Um, It could be argued to be efficient, but I think everyone wouldn't be happy. So in terms of the second one, I think people wanted more legal action because that's kind of what gets the headlines, what people kind of expect of the HRC. But that doesn't mean that its work wasn't effective. It was just effective maybe in a less visual way. Mm -hmm. Um, Whereas now it's more legal, which means, yes, you're getting those cases, but actually maybe some of the broad broader stuff that uh, that's harder like a culture change which is yeah. is more subtle and is a lot is, t- is harder to come about that maybe isn't so prominent and that that might be a problem so i think over time you can say it's become more effective um but there it would depend on your view but i think definitely it's more effective than it was when it started in terms of whether public bodies can regulate other public body bodies one of the issues with the HRC or, is that um, it's a national human rights institution and there's something called the Paris Principles which set down requirements of national human rights um, institutions and one of the requirements is that it's independent from the government. Mm-hmm. So one of the concerns that's always been expressed about the HRC is it's not independent from the government. It falls under the responsibility of a government department. Yeah, They argue they should fall under Parliament. It should be Parliament that oversees them. Then they can, they'd be more independent from the government. That said, um, the fact that it is overseen by a government department doesn't mean it hasn't been... Um, Able to scrutinize government bodies. So it has done lots of different reports on schools, for example, health and social care. It has criticized the way the police have used stop and search powers. So it has done, it has criticized the executive and things like that. Um, ultimately, whether a public body can regulate another public body probably depends on the consequences. So if there's going to be strong consequences for you not complying with equality and human rights law, people won't, uh, will. Make sure they do comply with it. So, for example, if your school and Ofsted are quite hot on equality and human rights during inspection, and you're not meeting their standards, mm-hmm. they can ultimately say you're inadequate, yeah. um, put you in special measures, ultimately close down. So that's actually quite significant. Um, the EHRC, perhaps because of its lack of resources and some of its powers probably doesn't have. Such strong powers, yeah. So it has to kind of use more soft power and p- apply pressure, uh, like in terms of um, publicity, things like that, in order to get people to change. But I think ultimately, in terms of whether public bodies can regulate other public bodies, it, it does depend on whether there's going to be proper consequences for non-compliance yeah. or not.
2: Yeah. Um. Speaking of schools, so uh, I know we were talking earlier about um the examples of um the failings of equality within schools and we talked about how um, there's this idea of teaching maths in a male way which I find a bit of a bizarre thing and how that's leading to a, a lack of female engagement in STEM subjects further on so um, I was wondering if you could tell me a bit more about that
1: uh, yeah so um, one of the kind of criticisms of schools is um, the, the way they teach things and so not not just in terms of gender but there can be certain ways they teach subjects which appeals to certain groups rather than other groups. Mm -hmm. And if we're taking kind of an an equality perspective, we should be, what schools should be doing is challenging everything. People tend to say, oh, we've always done this, this -hmm. is what we have to do, rather than saying, well, actually, does this work for all our students? If not, why not? What can we do differently? What would appeal to those students? Um, So one of the areas that people have started doing work is around the teaching of maths, for example, because historically, um, girls actually across the board tend to perform better than boys in lots of subjects mm-hmm. but maths is just not one of them so they're, they're looking at why is this there's, there's nothing that shows that um, women are worse at maths than men so there's no yeah. reason for the difference in outcomes but there is this kind of really noticeable difference in outcomes um, and some schools um, that I've worked with have kind of t- tried to um, bring in new teaching techniques trying to en- um, just make it more engaging Mm -hmm. Um, uh, for female students in order to try and get um, better results in terms of uh, women in maths.
0: So is that something that perhaps Ofsted would be considering when they were doing an inspection?
1: So that that would be something that uh, Ofsted could pick up. The problem that has is it's only in a school for a very short space of time. Mm-hmm. Um, they have to rely very heavily on data. So this this would be something they could perhaps pick up. If there's a disparity in terms of yeah. gender, that should show up in the data, and they could say, why is this? And they might observe some math, math lessons. What's problematic in terms of equality and human rights generally in schools is often it's not really possible to kind of put equality and human rights as a number. So often there might be inequality or mm-hmm. breaches of human rights, but it's not its not really possible to show that in data. So yeah. just looking at comparing data, it's not really visible. It's only when they inspect and actually see mm-hmm. what's going on in terms of lessons, how people are treated in terms of um, detention, in terms of um, whether they're uh, expelled and all that kind of stuff, yeah. um, that they can see, yes, we might have problems here. Have you thought about doing this? And often with equality in human rights, it's quite positive as well. So it's not necessarily doing anything wrong. You can just do things better. And yeah, it's always sure. constantly thinking, what can we do better? How can we improve? And stuff like that cannot really be done in data. And is difficult to pick up in, if you're only, if you're only there two days. Yeah, It's very difficult to pick up on those things.
0: Yeah, so given there's probably difficulties um, gaining evidence in a quantitative sense, would you probably say then that like, Ofsted reports are more of a qualitative kind of measure of a school but then how sort of what are their powers following the um, following an offset report
1: so they would give a rating um, for a school so outstanding good um, requires improvement or um, inadequate these have different consequences but basically if your requires improvement or um, uh, inadequate Mm They'll inspect you very, very soon after. So they'll they'll say these are the things that are inadequate. These are the things that are, are, are require improvement, and they expect you to improve those. Yeah. Um, so they'll and they'll come back. They'll support you actually during that. So you'll have someone to support you during that process. But they'll come back and inspect you, and basically they have if you don't do that, they have quite strong powers. So they can ultimately kind of close you down. Um, Mm-hmm. In for change for if you're a community school under the local authority, force you to become an academy, so you're seen by the government. um So there's quite strong repercussions yeah. if you continue to stay as requires improvement or inadequate. Yeah. So o- Ofsted does have very strong powers to uh, kind of ensure compliance.
2: So is there more that can be done looking to the future if, with the commission, especially in the formative primary secondary school years? In your opinion?
1: Um, yeah. So one of the things I think Ofsted could do better is often um so there's this idea by uh, jeremy bentham um called uh it's like a prison Uh, it's called a panathletism or something it basically means that you're constantly observed Mm -hmm. so although ofsted might only be there once every two years schools don't always know when they're going to be inspected um so basically you have to behave in a certain way because they could just drop in any minute and inspect you so Mm -hmm. if you're not ready you'll fail the inspection so actually you should behave all the time like they want you to in order to pass the inspection when it comes. So one of the things I think Ofsted could do better in terms of their guidance for schools and expectations is kind of clearly put in equality and human rights. So say these are what we expect Mm -hmm. throughout their framework. Because I think then schools will take it more seriously. It'll be like everyday business Mm
3: -hmm.
1: rather than um, just focusing on specific. So Ofsted at the moment just focuses on specific. So they'll look at kind of send children Um, They'll look at um, sometimes about religious education. So the bits of it are picked up, but it's not really integrated throughout their framework. Um, And the Equality and Human Rights Commission has uh, picked up on this previously in previous um, examples of its framework. But I think that Ofsted could do much better in putting it kind of central stage, making sure it's in every bit of their assessment framework. Yeah. Um, the Care Equality Commission do do this, so they're not in, in, throughout their framework they've clearly put equality in human rights. They've said where they appear, where they come from, and this helps to encourage organisations to make it kind of standard business. So rather than it yeah. just being...
0: It's more of a holistic approach then, rather yeah. than being segmented or based in silos on like particular aspects of education, yeah. such as send children and whether they are having equality through their education, it's looking at everyone in a holistic manner.
1: Yeah, so um, one of the criticisms of the commission, the HSC, was that when they do have equality, it just falls under one bit. So it mm-hmm. would just be like, have you done this? Whereas they say equality in human rights are so important, it should fall across the whole inspection. Yeah, it I shouldn't be it's just that it's a one tick box as mm-hmm. part of it, it should be I integrated guess. into everything.
0: Yeah. So given that there's um, a lot of kind of regulation of primary and secondary education, Ofsted's, I believe that Ofsted's kind of remit doesn't fall into higher education. Are there any measures in place to regulate higher education?
1: Um, So there's kind of two primary mechanisms of regulation for higher education. One is the Office for Students, Mm -hmm. uh, which is a new regulator, which is responsible for ensuring kind of value for money for students. Um, It's also looking at in terms of um, widening participation um, and how well universities are doing on that. There's also the classic league tables. So um, league t- they, mm-hmm. league tables are used for schools as well, but actually they are a method of regulation because mm-hmm. people want to perform as well as possible in the league tables. So we'll be um, focusing on specific out- a- aspects of the score in order to increase their place mm-hmm. in the league table. Again, whether this is a good thing or not is is questionable because actually there are there are things you can do to increase uh, your scoring in the league table, but that it might not actually improve things. So for example, one of the things is how many students get 2-1. You could quite easily give more students 2-1. But that's not really uh, a, a good long-term strategy because employers will work out eventually that actually these students are not really 2-1 students. So the league, you might go up the league table, yeah. but actually it's not really improving the quality yeah. of your education. Um, so that there are mechanisms for overview of universities but they're much weaker than schools so we don't have to really pass anything there's no kind of formal inspection of a Mm -hmm. university that you have to pass in order for it to continue or there's no kind of grading system it literally just um, the office for students and league tables that kind of regulate what universities do
0: do you think there's issues there in terms of equality and human rights um, because there is a lack of regulation
1: um, so I guess so. The the equality and human rights commission's remit would fall over universities, <laughs> so it would be responsible for looking at how equality and human rights have been used in universities, how they're using the public sector equality duty. Um, there's also obviously students can bring um, legal cases, they so take cases to court if they have issues around equality and diversity. Um, but historically, universities have generally been quite free um to do what they want um, and I think partly that's because there is kind of a long-standing free speech. So in a university you should have um, a lot more space for speech and trying out ideas testing out ideas. Um, and this means that sometimes, although it it's it's more um, it's a more acceptable form to express kind of sexist or racist views than, society in general Mm -hmm. now there's a there's a place to do that and um, I think they the point of the university is to kind of bring those out and to challenge them and explain why actually they're wrong and there's alternatives but in other areas of life it's not really possible to have that freedom Um, so there's a big way up between kind of equality and human rights and free speech and
2: Yeah, yeah there's a bit of a fine line there between how far can we let freedom of expression Rain, but then the Human Rights Commission have been publishing, and there's I think there was a, there's a stat about one in twenty students thought about dropping out of university because of um, the harassment and abuse they got. Twenty four percent of ethnic minorities um, said that they've been harassed to like, quite a high degree. So I I don't know how do you how do you weigh up freedom of speech and should we even should we be allowed to ever express racist views regardless of being at university.
1: So I think there's a clear difference between harassment and expressing kind of an extreme view. I think harassment is, is, uh, the definition of harassment means on more than one occasion, you've kind of threatened someone, made them feel uncomfortable. Um, So I I think that that's never okay. It's never okay. Harassment can never be justified. And actually, I I don't, I, I wouldn't encourage people to express kind of racist, sexist views. But, um, the whole point of academia is sometimes to discuss uncomfortable ideas, uncomfortable things, and challenge them, and say, "Well, what can we do differently? How can things improve?" Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the university is is ideal for that. So there is a, I guess, there's a line, and you can see this quite a lot in terms of discussions in universities between what is acceptable to say, what's not acceptable to say, and. I think it is it is a difficult balance, um, but yeah, harassment is never okay. Um, and I think there are kind of, I think the, the report you mentioned brings up some really interesting issues, because I think there are issues in terms of the culture of the university
3: mm-hmm.
1: being um, historically the management, a lot of the staff would be white, male, and that's kind of seeped into the culture and the cultural expectations in terms of courses, um, what's expected of students. And I think there is a need one, I guess, to get a wider reflection of society in terms of staff and that we challenge everything that we do. The same as I was saying about schools, you have to think, well, do we need to do it this way? Mm-hmm. It, it might have always been this way, but do we need to do it this way? Can we do things differently? And I think we are starting to do that. So there's a, different forms of assessment are used, people are trying out different forms of teaching and engagement. Um, but I think universities still have some way to go in, in terms of improving the culture. Yeah. Into, uh, to be more welcoming to kind of people that aren't white male basically
0: do you think there's perhaps any strategies that could be deployed or any um processes that could be um initiated in universities to increase that diversity particularly from like lower socioeconomic backgrounds um cultural diversity
1: um yeah so i think the so i take part in the Sutton trust um s- summer school and i've i've always i always think that's very really useful so a lot, a lot of time students from um, kind of poorer backgrounds that their parents won't have gone to university, and actually, so it's not really thought about as an option for them. Um, and I, w- I went to a really poor school. I was the only one from my school to go to university. So I know that it's kind of, it is a, it's a different, it's a scary place. It's a different place. You don't know anyone that's been. You don't really know what it's mm-hmm. like. So I think it's great getting people in to actually see it's not that intimidating. Um, to give them an idea of what to expect, kind of um, show them that it is an option. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think things like that are really useful. Uh, One of the things I think that, again, there's a lot of debate about is to what extent you help students in terms of financially, because obviously that's the other big barrier. Um, And in terms of the fees, one argument would be actually, you don't really incur any cost because uh, it's all loans until you actually earn a certain amount of money and then pay it yeah. back. But I think even so, a headline figure of the thousands and thousands of pounds you have to pay is intimidating, yeah. uh, particularly if you're from kind of a poor background where that, that's a lot of money. Um, so I think there's work around that. And then there have been kind of grants given, but they're kind of rowing back on this in terms of individual support grants. So I think maybe they can do more there. Mm-hmm. In terms of kind of ethnic minorities, um that that's a comp that's a more complicated issue I guess you could do something similar but um because I guess uh, because fees have become so expensive tr- uh, in the last 10-20 years what you've seen is more people go to their local university because then they can stay at home it's cheaper oh, yeah. so then you're kind of reflecting uh, your local environment and if your local environment is predominantly white i It's very difficult then to get the kind of diversity Agreed. needed um whereas if for example, so here but I don't know the numbers, but I imagine um like Exeter and Devon is much lower in terms of um ethnic minority groups compared to say London, so if you're in London, you probably would have a more diverse yeah. um student intake compared to kind of here um I guess we could i guess the the only way to kind of overcome that is to market. To, to specific groups in certain ways. So think mm-hmm. about how you market and encourage groups from ethnic minorities to apply. Maybe yeah. support them in the applica- application process. You might do another kind of summer school for ethnic minority students. You, again, you, if if they're coming from kind of outside the local area, you're gonna you're gonna probably have to support them in some way in terms of finance. Yeah. Um. So I guess that would be some way. Yeah. Um. To kind of go in terms of uh, attracting a more diverse yeah. student base.
0: One thing I think that some universities have done is to adopt a lower grade boundary system for entry. So, those from lower socioeconomic backgrounds where participation at university is particularly low in comparison to the rest of the UK geographically, um, some universities have lowered their grade boundaries in order to encourage those students to be able to access um, higher education, particularly at well respected, you know, Russell Group, Redbrick, whatever you'd like to call them universities. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, it's something I support. So there, there's clear research that actually, um, if you take someone that went to kind of a really poor um, secondary school and someone that went to a private school, they might have the same A-level grades, but actually at university, the one from the poor school will do much better, mm-hmm. just because actually you have to do a lot more to yeah. get those grades. Going to a really bad secondary school, um, so uh, yeah, I think the research is there. It shows that um, it shows that. So I actually reducing the grades a bit would go along with that research. Um, It has been quite controversial, though. Uh, Other universities that kind of openly did it in the past were kind of very criticised by private schools, who said, we're not going to encourage any of our students to apply to this university. So there can be kind of quite severe repercussions of doing Mm -hmm. that. Um, But yeah, it's something I I would definitely support. Great.
0: So just to wrap up, really, um, we've talked a lot about education. And one particular issue that's been in the press recently is radicalisation. so, I mean, the, the case at the forefront is the Begum case, um, where, in effect, um, Shemaima Begum was um, radicalised and she left her education in her home in the UK and went to Syria, um, where she has now effectively lost her right to citizenship of the UK. What do you think that schools should be doing to prevent radicalisation of students under their obligations in human rights?
1: Uh, it's, yeah, it's very difficult. Um, it's a difficult balance because, not even just in terms of radicalisation. So, radicalisation kind of means becoming kind of extreme in your views, uh, and you're more likely to um, be violent or commit a terrorist atrocity, either because you're kind of, uh, so historically Islam or now increasingly right wing um, radicalisation. But equally, there's other forms of radicalization that wouldn't be caught by the duty. So for example, people becoming involved in gangs and stuff, mm-hmm. you, you, n- you might not face a, it's not the same kind of terrorist threat, but it's still maybe something we want to discourage. And I think there's a delicate balance between identifying and supporting people and kind of um, being too, uh, I think it, it, it can, in- there's a potential for it to encourage stereotyping mm-hmm. and for looking f- um, for behavior that's not really there um, so I guess one of the problems I have is is with the prevent duty being made a legal duty. I think that means people tend to over comply perhaps, so refer things that they don't need to. Bec- um, and although this is not a problem per se, it's always better to be safe than sorry, I think it can affect relationships between uh, teachers and pupils, mm-hmm. um, staff and students at universities. Um, because it kind of others the, uh, certain groups. It's kind of like, we're this group, you're a different group. Um, mm-hmm. We're monitoring you. We're kind of, um, we're suspicious of you. And yeah. I think that that is difficult. So I think there is a role for schools. So I, I, I think the, the key thing role for schools for me is more of an educative role. So rather than kind of being suspicious and being detectives and monitoring all the students and seeing what they're doing and reporting them, mm-hmm. It's more about um, educating them on kind of the importance of equality, human rights, educating them on the different options they have available to talk to people and um, supporting them in, in, in different things. Um, so to me, that's where schools are particularly valuable rather than kind of the snooping and, and yeah. kind of being suspicious. Like, obviously, if it's an extreme case, by all means, uh, report it. But I think they would anyway. I don't yeah. think they need a duty in order to do that. Um, but I think perhaps more could be made in terms of, Teaching and just teaching respect for each other and views and freedom of expression and speech mm-hmm. and things like that rather than um, encouraging, I guess, yeah. difference and separation and all that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, so perhaps instead of imposing kind of rules and regulations on this area, it would be more encouraging sort of the taught aspect of P- PSHE lessons, um, that kind of integration into that aspect of
1: yeah Curriculum. um yeah and just so again one of the things we, we talk about uh, again research shows this and i kind of observe it quite a lot uh, when i've taught at different universities and i always think it's quite interesting is how quickly say a seminar group um separates into kind of race and class lines so all the working class people sit together, a particular race will sit together, all the middle class people sit together so I think one of the things that schools and universities can do is kind of force different people to work together because it's only when we work with different people that actually we see they are like us, we've, we've got shared various, experiences yes. and it, that's important rather than kind of this group being here, this group being here, so I mm-hmm. think that's something that, the world that schools and universities could do better.
2: Yeah it's a bit like what you were talking about earlier about everyone getting their opinions challenged and, and kind of Viewing other sides to it, and I think one of the things with radicalisation, especially, is that it it does become an isolation. That's why social media and uh, I think it was was it Twitter with, with But that um, are are allowed to kind of control the narrative is because they haven't got their views um, discussed and kind of shared and criticised in some situations. Yeah,
1: that is a very really good point. So that that's why I think freedom of speech is really important at university. Mm-hmm. To me, the most dangerous views are those that are kind of kept hidden everyone should be able to express anything and then everyone should be able to like, freely discuss those. Yeah. Uh, it's only if someone kind of expresses some, something racist and other people say, actually, that's not okay because of these reasons, yeah. that they're going to change their mind rather than if you make it so that they don't feel comfortable ever expressing anything and, and they, these mm-hmm. kind of feelings fester and get stronger and stronger and pass kind of down generations. And, so I, th- I think it's really important that there is a kind of free discussion of these ideas so they can be effectively challenged
0: yeah i think p- perhaps the difficulty is that if we leave it to universities and such institutions to kind of be slightly more self-regulating in the way they approach their teaching methods etc then the reliance and the onus is on them in some regard to kind of encourage students like we say to work together from different backgrounds to recruit students from different backgrounds to recu- recruit staff from different backgrounds um And that could, you know, the way in which universities self-regulate could vary between institution to institution. And that's, I think, perhaps where you get some inequality.
1: Yeah, um, so there's definitely arguments for greater regulation of universities. It's a difficult balance because I don't think we'd ever want Ofsted-style regulation because I think it is uh, freedom on universities is important. So actually universities should have the freedom to do different things. And actually, that's one of the kind of big cells of a university. It can say, well, we do this or Mm -hmm. the universities don't do this. We do this. So actually, in terms of quality and diversity, that could be quite a big cell. So if you can say, I don't know if it's measured in some way, we have one of the highest uh, mixes of students, the students um, are happy and that, that could be a big sell to students, because actually, I think most students would want to work in that environment. Okay. So that could be something that you could compete on, really, mm-hmm. as long as it was kind of a adequate reflection of how students feel. Yeah. Um, so in terms of the student satisfaction survey, that could be something taken into account in that. Or yes. uh, So it's things like that, I guess, where the university has to be held to account in some way. And I'm not sure at the moment how accountable universities are yeah. in terms of these things.
0: It kind of appears that the rep, their reputation is their only means of perhaps being accountable because, you know, the lower their reputation falls, perhaps because of incidents or um, lack of inequality, lack of equality even. Um, Reflects the students that want to go there, and therefore that's a loss of revenue for the university.
1: Yeah, so everyone's competing for students. The students, um,
0: bums on seats, is is money at the end of the day. There's
1: a lot of money, so that they're all competing for students. Um, And yeah, anything that harms your reputation um, is probably going to either either you'll lose students, or depending where you are, kind of in the hierarchy you might get weaker students and then that can affect kind of in terms of the two ones first and Mm -hmm. kind of progression rates and things like that so it's yeah reputation is really important um and that's probably one of the problems of league tables in that encourages gaming and so basically you do things that are always going to enhance your reputation rather than actually maybe meaningful long-term things that wouldn't get recorded or noticed.
0: Yeah, perhaps it can seem like an artificial kind of reflection of the state of a university and what they're actually doing to encourage equality and diversity versus, you know, the reality and what is actually being done perhaps behind the scenes and on the ground to improve those aspects of student life.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think you can only really get that from asking students themselves. and, And that's why I guess this report's really important because it was staff and students that said how it feels to be kind of an ethnic minority on a university and the, the experiences they have day to day that that just wouldn't be captured otherwise I don't think
0: yeah thank cool. you David it's okay <laughs> thank you David for joining us that was a truly insightful podcast and gave us a much greater insight into the role of the human rights commission particularly in relation to education I'm sure our listeners will be excited to hear this episode Please do tune in to our next episode, um, and if possible, take a look at our webpage, exeterlaw.org, where we post weekly short articles. Um, Submissions for the 45th edition of the Exeter Law Review Journal are also open, and submissions um, will be closing in early December. Please email your submissions to lawreview at exeter.ac.uk. Thank you for listening.